All right, I invite you to turn with me uh, first to Psalm 115, Psalm 115. Been a series through the Heidelberg uh, Catechism, and we begin now our exposition of the Ten Commandments, or as we're going to refer to them as the Ten Words of the Covenant. Uh, the word for commandment could be translated simply as a word. It's a word of the covenant that God has established with us, his people. And today we'll be considering the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words that God has given us. And we see that commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, working itself out and playing itself out here in Psalm 115. And we'll begin reading at verse 1. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord... Not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. We're going to turn to the New Testament, uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, just to read a couple verses there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Here Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians regarding uh, their initial reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power that it had in turning them from idols to now serve the living and true God. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols... To serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So far from God's word. We're going to turn now to our catechism in the back of our hymnal, and uh, to Lord's Day uh, 35. Rather, Lord's Day 34. I feel like I get the Lord's Day wrong every Sunday, so <laughs> I'm always one off. Lord's Day 34, and there are a number of questions there. The first one being uh, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words of the Covenant, which we'll recite together. And so I'll read the questions and then we'll recite uh, the answers together. So, question 92 What is God's law? God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing love to thousands of generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male servant or female servant, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Question 93. How are these commandments divided? Into two tables. The first has four commandments teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments teaching us what we owe our neighbor. Question 94. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures, that I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, look to Him for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. In question 95, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of true God, who has revealed himself in his word. So far from our catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you think about God's law, what are some adjectives or some ideas that come to your mind? I had asked that question uh, to a group of older ladies in the church, older saints in the church, at a women's Bible study I was teaching back in seminary. And I was kind of struck by the answer that they gave to that, especially as those, for them, who had grown up in the church, they'd been in the church, some of them 60, 70, 80 years, they've heard God's law recited, and again, I was kind of surprised by the answers that they gave when I asked them what comes to mind when you think about God's law. And I remember they had said, well, difficult. Um, they had said hard. Uh, they had said demanding. All negative connotations. And it was surprising because God's law, as Paul reminds us, is good and righteous and true. That God's law is given to his people, especially, as we see here, within the context of his covenant of grace. And the, the catechism highlights this for us by reminding us that the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words of the Covenant, do not begin with, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And God's relationship with his people doesn't begin with a commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. But rather, God's commandments, God's will for his people begins, and the relationship begins with his grace. It begins with with, with what God has done for his people. And so when the catechism begins with the first commandment, it doesn't begin with, you shall have no other gods before me. But it begins by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the gracious covenant that God has established with his people and the context in which God's law now comes to his people. Yes, outside of God's covenant and apart from his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's law condemns us. It convicts us. And and, and we're left hopeless needing a savior and recognizing, right? So in that regard, the law is useful for those outside of God's covenant, convicting them of sin, turning them from themselves that they might look to the savior that God has provided, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, the law serves the gospel. It it causes people to recognize that they cannot save themselves and that they are not righteous before God and therefore they need one to save them. They need someone to be their righteousness and so it points them to the only one who can save, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as God has brought us into his covenant, as he has set us free from sin and misery, within the context of his covenant of grace, he then calls us to walk in these ways as he has enabled us to do so. Not perfectly yet, but as we're growing in these things, but he still causes us to make a beginning in in this new way of living which begins with having no other gods before uh, the one true and living God. And so when we think about God's law, we ought to think about it in terms of as our delight. It ought to be that which we take joy in more and more, right? Not perfectly, but more and more in this life. That's the life of sanctification. It's a life of being made more and more like Christ. And when I think about God's law, I think about it within the context of the fact that God has saved me apart from anything that I have done. God has redeemed me. He has set me free in Jesus Christ apart from the works of the law. I begin there. And now with a heart of gratitude for what God has done for me and thankfulness overflowing, I delight myself in his ways. And that delight begins in this relationship with God, this covenant bond, with having no other gods before him. It begins there, right? Because the covenant is one of a relationship, right? Yes, there's obligations, and yes, there's a legal arrangement to a covenant. God promises to do this, and we promise to respond in this way. But within that legal arrangement is, at the heart of it, a relationship with God, knowing God and being known by him. It's why the Catechism says when it talks about the dividing of the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, that the first half has four commandments teaching us how we should live in relation to God. Right? God has brought us into relation with him within the context of his covenant, and now we ought to live, in, uh, live out that relationship by first having no other gods before him. And so as we think about then this first word of the covenant, I want us to think about uh, three things, uh, three simple points, uh, but things that are, I think, very transformative 
for our lives as Christians. And it's under this theme that we are to turn from idols, trust in the Lord, and be transformed. Turn from idols, trust in the Lord, and be transformed. And so those are going to be our three points, turning, trusting, and being transformed. So turning from idols, right? In Psalm 115, which we had read, um, we have here a sort of argument against the idols, a polemic, you could say, against idols. And the, uh, here, the, uh, the, um, the psalmist is reminding us that an idol, something in which we trust alongside of or in the place of God, is something that is made by human hands. Right? It reminds us in Psalm 115, there in verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands, right? And so um, you might imagine idols in the days of the psalmist as things that they carved, uh, actual things of silver and gold or of wood, and often fashioned in the form of a man with eyes and with a mouth and with ears and with a nose, with hands, right? They, they, they fashion their idol as if it was a living thing. But the thing only has the appearance of being alive. It has no true life in itself. In fact, the idol may have a mouth, but it doesn't speak. It has eyes, but it, it doesn't see. It has ears, but it doesn't hear. A nose, but it doesn't smell. Hands, but it doesn't feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And so we're reminded then that an idol is something that is lifeless. An idol it has no power in itself. And therefore, to trust in an idol is to trust in something that is powerless. To trust in an idol is to trust in something that is simply dead. And what can something dead do for you? What can something powerless do for you? And yet, as John Calvin reminds us, our hearts are idol factories. We just produce them so quickly, so easily, just to trust in something and the, and the scriptures remind us, especially here in Psalm 115, that such idols that we fashion in our hearts and with our hands have no power to save us, no power to rescue us, no power to comfort us, no power to be with us. They are dead and they are lifeless. And so, these idols then are things that we ought not to put our trust in. We ought to then, as the, we're reminded throughout the scriptures, to turn from such idols. Now in our day, of course, not many of us are fashioning idols by hand, though there are certainly people who do that today. Um, various figures, uh, various persons um, in which they bow down before. We have other people who worship uh, nature as an idol. Um, many of you know I have a fascination with trees and, and reading books on trees. Not in a weird way, but just I enjoy seeing that. Okay, going on hikes and seeing. But you read some of these books and the people who are writing them verge on or even cross over into nature worship. They worship the trees. They worship uh, the beauty of them. And, and, and there's a thing to behold in nature, but not in and of itself, but insofar as it reflects the glory of the one true and living God. But nature worship as idolatry is all around us. And beyond that, we have the simple idols, of course, of sex and of money. Things that we worship and trust in. These are the things that will satisfy. These are the things that will secure me. These are the things that give me purpose and meaning. It's the whole point of the sexual revolution. Your identity, your purpose, your meaning in life is defined by your sexual orientation, whatever that might be. 
It's idolatry. Trusting in money, thinking a, a large bank account will keep me safe from tragedies and catastrophes that may fall. The general idea of materialism is all around us, and we, it's the air that we breathe. It's why, if you look at the statistics, the amount of people in credit card debt, the amount of people taking out loans, all of those things reflect not just a system that has people trapped, it reflects a heart that has made an idol of things and of having more things and needing more things, living beyond our means rather than um, living within our means or even as the Christian ought to, though there's no particular obligation on what this exactly looks like. But for many of us, Christians ought to live under our means that we might then be generous uh, towards other people as well. That's turning from the idol of materialism. All right, so the idols are all around us. It's not an ancient idea. Idolatry is present within our own society and even within our own hearts. And the scriptures call us to turn from those idols because they are powerless and they are dead. And they will not satisfy you ultimately in the end. And so while we are to turn from idols, right, the point then is not then to be on our own, but then to trust in the Lord, right? Turn from idols, trust in the Lord. And I love the contrast that the psalmist draws out, right? He says that in verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. But notice what it says regarding the Lord, who is the one true and living God, right? While the idols are the work of human hands, verse uh, uh, 14, uh, rather, uh, verse 15 tells us, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth, right? So the, the contrast couldn't be any more stark. The idols who are the works of human hands and the Lord who made heaven and earth, the very things that are being used to fashion idols God made. The materials from which the um, idols are made precede their existence, right? Men take those materials and fashion them, but God made the material things. God precedes the things that he made, right? The idols are made, God makes. The idols are created, God is the creator. The idols are dead and lifeless, like wood and stone, but God is the living God who creates and who made heaven and earth, and therefore, we ought not to trust in idols, but rather to trust in the Lord, for He is the living and true God. The Catechism says that I ought then, according to God's commandment, that I should have no other gods before Him, that I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, right? That's the key word, alone, and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. Now, in many ways, the, really the whole of the Bible is opening up what it looks like for us to trust the Lord. And it's hard to kind of encapsulate that in just a few moments that we have here to reflect upon and hear from God regarding this commandment. But at the heart of our life within the context of God's covenant as his people is trust, Right? Any relationship, right? We said earlier that the covenant is a relationship. And so a relationship is deepened when there is more trust. And where trust is lost, a relationship is usually broken. But where there is trust, there is a relationship. And the deeper that relationship goes requires that trust to go deeper along with it. 
And so the Christian life then begins, as we see with the Thessalonians, it begins from turning from idols and now serving and trusting the Lord, the one true and living God who has revealed himself in Christ and on the pages of Scripture. And as we trust in him, that is the beginning of the Christian life, right? Placing my trust, trusting his word, trusting his promises. That's at the heart of our faith. And as I trust him at the beginning of my Christian life, now the maturing of my Christian life is a matter of deepening in that trust. You know, we're a young congregation. And I think something that we ought to be thinking about is what does a mature Christian life look like? What does it mean to be maturing in the Christian life? Now, there's things we could point to, like like, these are things you should be doing. But really, the the heart of the matured Christian life is one of deeper and deeper trust in God. The circumstances in which we find ourselves are going to be ones that call us then to trust God more. Hardships, trials, persecution, sufferings, things that come to us from God's fatherly hand, not by chance, come to us that we might trust him more. And so the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is not one that I simply kind of check the box off of and then move on. It's one that I'm growing in and one that you are growing in as a Christian as you trust the Lord more and more, as your trust deepens with him. And one of the um, most important ways this, this kind of enters our lives and becomes very relevant to us is, as the catechism says, I'm to do so humbly and patiently. You might say, well, why, why add those words, humbly and patiently? Well, in the Christian life, one of the biggest struggles is God's timing, right? For many of us, I, I, we've, we've spoken to many of you, counseled many of you, talked talk through various situations, right? The hardest thing is often God's timing of things. I'm praying for this. Why hasn't he answered yet? I'm asking him to remove this. Why hasn't he answered me yet? Why is this situation like this? Why? Humbly and patiently. And, and it requires us then, in obedience to the first commandment, in joy to God, to trust that his wisdom and his timing is actually the best for us, even if it doesn't make at all sense to us in the moment. In fact, it may seem to, be, to, to say the very opposite. God doesn't care. God isn't with me. Rather, in those moments, we're to trust him more, humbly and patiently, humbly as we submit to his wisdom, patiently as we wait for him to act, right? That's what the Thessalonians did, right? As we read in 1 Thessalonians 1, that they turned from idols, trusted in the Lord to serve the one true and living God, and to wait for his son who would be revealed from heaven. Part of the Christian life, not only in certain seasons and moments in our life, but the whole Christian life is one of waiting. The whole Christian life is one of trusting the Lord and waiting for his promise to be fulfilled um, in us. And so we're to trust the Lord alone and look to him humbly and patiently for every good thing. And as we grow in those things, we're deepening in our love for God, in our relationship with him. And so we've seen turning from idols, trusting the Lord, but lastly, and things we've already been highlighting a bit, but being transformed. And this is one of the most wonderful things, I think, revealed to us here in Psalm 115, negatively and also positively. Notice what it says, the idea of being transformed in verse 8. 
Those who make them, this is put negatively, right? Those who make them, those who make idols, become like them. Those who make idols become like them. Well, what are they like? They have ears, but they cannot hear. Eyes, but they cannot see. Mouths, but they can't. They're dead. And those who become like them or make them become like them. Lifeless and dead. So do all who trust in them. But positively, notice what it says, not as uh, directly, but it's the same idea in verse 17 and 18. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. He's saying uh, those who praise the Lord must be living, right? To praise the Lord is to be alive. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Reflected here is life and life everlasting, right? Those who make the idols become like them, dead and lifeless. But those who trust in the Lord become like him, living even living forevermore. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so this principle here is often said, you become what you worship. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, G.K. Beale, also puts it this way. He says, you resemble what you revere. And maybe I could add one more way of putting it. You are transformed into what you trust. What you put your trust in, you are made like that. You're transformed And therefore, as we put our trust in the Lord, it's there that we find the transforming power of God. That Christ transforms us, right? And so again, the first commandment has great significance for your life as a Christian. Deepening in your trust for the Lord, having no other gods before him. And as you are deepened in your trust for the Lord, all the other commandments kind of fall into place, right? From that commandment, we are transformed into what we trust, as we trust the Lord Jesus Christ, as we wait for him, we are made more and more into his image. We are transformed to be like him. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear with him in glory. Then he will come and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, no longer struggling with sin, no longer struggling under the reign and power of death and its consequences, but now entering life Everlasting. This is the transforming power of trust and trusting in the Lord. You are transformed into what you trust. And therefore, brothers and sisters, let us turn every day from the idols that our hearts are manufacturing. Let us trust in the Lord more and more. And in so trusting, let us then be transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ more and more into his image that we might live and be reflections of his glory in this world today and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have set us free from our sin and our misery. You've redeemed us. And Father, you've established a relationship with us, not beginning with the commandment, but beginning with your grace. And what you have done for us in giving us your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ. And may our love in response to that, fill us then with joy in walking in your ways that we might have indeed no other God before you. May we trust you in everything and then in, and in so trusting be transformed more and more into the image of your son in whose name we pray. Amen.